Are we recording? Can I can I start selling saying some interesting content now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as, much, yes? as much as you ever do. I, I... So anyway, welcome to Cheap Talk. I'm here with my esteemed guest, as always. No, that's not right. You do that part. Hi everyone. <laughs> welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name. It's mailbag episode. This, we're ha- we're having fun today. We're going crazy. My name is Jeff Kaplow. We're reversing our roles. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus. Professor Marcus Holmes, how you doing? How's everything? Uh, doing well over here. It's good to see you. It's been a little while since our last episode. We, we got to um, get back on a schedule here. But uh, wait, no, this is our last episode of the semester, yeah. right? Right. Last yeah. episode of the semester. This is, uh, we're filming this in, in early December. Semester will soon be over, and so we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus until uh, next semester. So let's go out with a bang. Yeah, so programming note, traditionally this podcast has been a fall-only endeavor. So that- I love that programming note, as if there was like a, a program that was, you know, it, it, we happen to we have a just plan. miss a week, you know, it's like, oh my God, like the schedule, they're off schedule. Then our long-time listeners will know there really is no schedule per se. I mean, there's a rough I've Very got a schedule. Rough. You just don't you just don't show up when you're supposed to. Yeah, it's it's a collective problem. You're you're more <laughs> on top of things than I am. Quick programming note because we traditionally have taken the spring off to rest and regroup <laughs> for and the summer as well. We're, the we're spring so and the tired. summer. <laughs> really it's and a the winter. Mostly year. it's just like a like a two <laughs> yeah, month yeah. period in which we actually record four the weeks podcast. We we do a podcast. Four weeks a year. Yeah. So we traditionally have done that, but um this year we're gonna try something new due to popular demand. For this content, we are going to re relaunch the podcast after a brief hiatus, and we'll we'll join you again um, once classes get going here at William and Mary at the end of January. So something to look forward to. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice so that you'll be notified when the episodes start running again. And if you were required to listen to this podcast because of a class you were taking, we invite mm-hmm. you to stick around. Maybe mm-hmm. you'll find something interesting and useful, and it um, might be helpful for future classes potentially, right? Or just life. I feel like like this class is or this uh, podcast is really all about life skills. And I mean, I've I've made this point to you, Jeffrey, many times. I think, you know, particularly our cooking lessons and our home improvement anecdotes are probably the more important. Like they, these are the things the students are going to remember, right? They're, they're going to learn very little from our classes, if we're being honest. But I think when they sit down and watch a YouTube video about home improvement and it looks easy. They'll say to themselves, I remember Marcus Holmes and Jeffrey Kaplow talking about how that can be a little misleading for selection bias problems. You know, no one posts their disaster videos on YouTube. Right. So I, I hope that the students get something out of this podcast. And if it's if it is home improvement and how to Sasquatch your turkey, then we will. Have, this will have been mission mission. accomplished. Just really quickly, Marcus, how did the turkey come out? I was telling my students. uh when we got back from Thanksgiving, the turkey was the best turkey I've ever had. Um, I followed your recommendation, which is Kenji's recommendation, which is to lather up your turkey in mayonnaise. And every minute of that day, up until the moment that I ate the turkey, I was convinced this was a horrible idea and it was going to be disgusting. Especially when you're, when you're, you know, it's raw turkey and you got your hand in the mayonnaise and you're putting it all around. It is really gross, like super gross. And yet, it was crispy on the outside, moist on the inside. The little herbs that you put into this. It's not just you just take it like a, a thing of Hellman's and like dump it on. No, 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 no. You do like a, herbs and like, you know, nice and salty. and everything. Plus the dry brine, I think, helped quite a bit. So in any event, it was the best. I'm never going to cook a turkey uh, any other way again. I, I, am, I am all in on the mayonnaise uh, roasted turkey. And I, and I might start putting mayonnaise on like more things. Like I've, heard, I've talked to people who put mayonnaise on salmon. I've heard people put the chicken, obviously. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to start mayonnaising up pretty much all my proteins and, and it's probably not that healthy for you. I mean, is there, is mayonnaise, I feel like one of the, you know, it's eggs, oil, highly produced, processed. I don't know. It's, it's a little, I'm not sure from a health standpoint, uh, how good it is for you, but it's, it sure is delicious. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that worked out for you and, um, I hope you had a nice, nice Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, it's all because of you. You, you turn me on to the, happy to, to the mayonnaise. Happy to take credit for that. Yeah. Great job. I thought what we could do today is answer some listener questions. So we've been saving up um, listener questions uh, throughout the semester. And I know your, I know your, your class uh, offered up some, 
some um, questions as well. Um, and so I thought we could just, you know, just go through some of these and, and uh, see what we have to say about some of them. And uh, as usual, maybe I'll take some liberties with names and locations because we don't necessarily want to um, call out people who, who... No, we have, you know, FERPA to, to think about. That's right. There are some, there are some legal restrictions on what we can say. Um, right. So why don't we kick it off with a question from Mike from Washington, D.C., who asks about the recent state dinner with France. And his, his question is basically, why do we do these things? So here's a, here's a state dinner where, um, you know, all the, the senior officials from France were there and then a bunch of celebrities come. And like, is there any kind of international relations purpose to this enterprise? Okay. Thank you, Mike from Sinclair. What, where was Washington, it Washington, D.C. Oh, Washington, D.C. Thanks, from Mike, from Washington, D.C. Uh, upper Northwest. Right. Maybe the, cat, the, the embassy region, like, like Mass Ave. Like, okay, it doesn't really matter. Not an important detail uh, for the question or the answer. So can I take this one, Jeff, Please. if you don't mind? Okay. That's what I thought was going to happen, but I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> so there are uh, – I- My role here, by the way, is just to read, read the questions and then <laughs> – <laughs> Okay, you're going to ask a bunch of questions of me. Your job is to answer them. Yeah. That's good. That's, that's not unlike most of our podcasts. That's right. So – I think there's a couple different ways to, to think. Of, and, and I love the question, by the way, because I think it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an important one. A couple different ways to kind of think about this, right? One is sort of substantively of like the dinner itself and, and, and what's happening, right? And I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made that these have historically been kind of like these ceremonial uh, rituals that you do to sort of show good faith. You know, you invite countries that you have either very cordial relationships with, like, you know, France, although... You know, we, we have had a little bit recently with the AUKUS uh, Australia thing. That, that was a little bit of a, of a, a brouhaha. But in any event, you know, France is, a, is an ally and, you know, so we have good relations with them. So one of the reasons you do this is to sort of just continue your good relationship building, right? You sort of, you know, you want to you show that you're still friends and you want to show the world like, you know, France and the United States have this good relationship and all that kind of stuff. You also do it with countries sometimes where your relationship is not so great. Uh, and you're trying to improve, right? And so you, one of the ways you can signal that you're, you know, sort of open to more cooperative relations is to have a dinner or some type of formal kind of ceremony. And so substantively, you can think about it in terms of like maybe kind of a, like a public diplomacy, kind of soft power type of thing where you're trying to kind of show the world you have a nice um, uh, uh, relationship. Sometimes at these dinners, actually, there is like substantive stuff that gets discussed. Not always, but you, you do often have uh, instances where, you know, the leaders will be able to you know, for a few minutes anyway, kind of have a backdoor kind of conversation. Maybe they go over something that's particularly uh, important or pressing. I think in, a, in an instance like this, you know, Russia, Ukraine will be will be discussed. Trade deals oftentimes are discussed at these types of things. Um, and so it's not just sort of like the dinner itself. Uh, that's that's the ceremonial aspect. But it's also, I think, an opportunity for leaders and other diplomats and, and high level officials to get together and talk and talk substance. Right. Uh, and, and more particularly talk substance, you know, in a face to face environment where you can kind of exclude outsiders if you want to you can, you can kind of go off on your own and, and be away from cameras and things like that there are opportunities uh for this type of thing there uh there is some research on gastro diplomacy and and if you if you want to dig into the sort of uh biological reactions that people have there's there's actually a fair amount of evidence that when you are uh meeting people over food um there are slight sort of biochemical reactions that happen that can improve uh both empathy uh and trust building Right. So now it happens. It happens most if you like the food that you're eating. Right. So hopefully the White House, you know, has good chefs and stuff like that. And they're producing good quality food. But there is uh, also this sort of element where, you know, it's a more relaxed setting and you're sort of more likely to kind of see the other person as a, as a human being and relate to them on a human level. Oftentimes spouses or significant others are present as well. That can that can sort of lighten the, the atmosphere, lighten the mood. I had a, a, a student last year do her senior thesis on the role of spouses in diplomacy. And, and her argument was actually, and I think it's right, you know, kind of provide like a little bit of a buffer in the sense that, that you know, you're unlikely to get into like a really heated or you're less likely to get into a heated conversation or a, or sort of like uncomfortable conversation if there, if there are spouses and significant others there because they can kind of like play a little bit of a role in, in toning things down and sort of, you know, saying like, let's not, let's not, you know, talk politics all day or whatever the case might be. So there might be a substantive role for, for people that aren't actually in the sort of policymaking world themselves to, to play here uh, in addition to the gastro, you know, reactions and things like that. But the other way of looking at this is, is I think a slightly different one, which is, you know, sometimes these dinners and, and summits um, are the, the ways in which people 
uh, and I mean people like everyday citizens, sort of interact with uh, the state or understand the state, right? So if you think about international relations in a sort of like abstract level, it's like your interactions with the state of France uh, are limited to like if you see you know, a, a French policymaker give a speech, let's say, or maybe a, a tweet, maybe you go to France on vacation or whatever. When you see them at a, at a, at a summit or you see them at a, a dinner, it kind of, in a sense, brings like, you know, France to life, right? It's, it's sort of saying like, here is international relations in, on display in front of you, right? And so the, the, the dinner and the summit become the sort of like focal point of like foreign policy in that, in that moment. And so you don't want you know go so far as to say like the the state comes into existence in these in these types of of dinners and things like that. But I do think there's a sense in which for like everyday people, international relations is simply things like these dinners. Like that's what actually you know international relations is. It's like seeing these states get together over through heads of state and through you know policymakers and stuff like that, having having a meal and the ceremonial sort of like you know pomp and circumstance of it all is not just to make people from France feel good, like, you know, oh, it's very nice that the White House rolls out the white carpet and all that kind of stuff, red carpet, but it's also to show the world, like, this is international politics. Like, this is what we're doing. This is this justifies kind of the existence of this whole, you know, enterprise and apparatus, right? So I think that's a very kind of, like, high, highly abstract theoretical way of thinking about it. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, like, these things are important, and I, and I, and I like the fact that the, the U.S. Uh, does them and continues to do them, and frankly, they should probably do even more of them. Uh, because I do think that they're they're helpful for for relations. So that's how I would I would answer that one, Jeff. So I I have no idea what you what you just said. That that, that didn't make that's any sense. That's also part 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 of the course. So yeah. okay. So among the people invited to this state dinner, Stephen Colbert, Jennifer Gardner, Julia Louis Dreyfus, John Legend, and Chrissy Teigen. Uh, Tim Tim Cook was there. Um, Tim Cook was invited. Yeah, Tim Cook was there. Huh. Um, this is great, right? Like these, these are great people. Um, fans of all of these people. Yeah. But you're telling me that this is important for international yeah. relations. So here's my test for importance. Imagine a world in which this state dinner did not happen. And instead there were just meetings and there were no celebrities at all at the white house. What is different in that world about us foreign policy, us relations with France? Well, okay. So first of all, France is a is a is a tough one because like we're not we're not in an adversarial. You just told me this was important for international relations. No, 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 no. I I, I do, I do. I'm saying like, but I'm saying like it's it's a tough case in the sense that you want to you want to show like change like pre dinner, post dinner. You know, it's tough to do with a state that's like France where we have these like good good relationships and stuff like that. But I will take on the challenge. I think what I mentioned before a second ago, right? We have we have a good relationship with France. But certainly there have been some problems recently, right? Like France was not happy when we did this deal with, with Australia because they thought they were going to do the deal with Australia, right? You might remember last year when this happened, there was like the, the embassy in, in D.C. was going to host like a cocktail party or something. And they canceled it because they were like, you know, that we this is not going to stand. This aggression from the United States is not going to stand. They were actually kind of upset. Go back even earlier. You have like freedom fries and like people getting all you know irritated about France. Uh, uh, not, you know, engaging in the wars that we... So I think actually this is a case where clearly the relationship with France is, is good, but it's not the best it could be. And so the substantive value of having a nice dinner and sort of having people relax and, and, and bringing celebrities, which, you know, the French are going to feel, uh, I think, elevates the atmosphere, I think it's a good thing, right? And I think it, it's, not, it's not a relationship that cannot improve. And I think the prospects for improving the relationship are much better at a dinner where you have Beyonce, you know, showing up than a meeting at the State Department. You know, and who wants to have a meeting in a windowless room at the State Department when you can have Beyonce sitting next to you? I, I'm picking up the fact that Beyonce was there. Like, or, or Bono, you know, he probably wasn't there either. But these <laughs> types of people, you know, having having a meal, like I would I'd like to talk to Bono. I'd rather talk to Bono at, a, at the White House than be in the State Department. I'm, I'm sure you would, too. So this is all part in creating a better relationship uh, with France. Furthermore, and this is one of the things that the students in my class will know, there is a, there's actually... Uh, some evidence that celebrities do a lot of good things in international politics, right? So, so uh, you know, Bono, for example, has been one of these people that's that's taken on a lot of very good causes, uh, uh, normatively good causes, like you know, foreign aid, debt relief, and stuff like that. Not foreign, developing country uh, debt relief, as an example, and has has taken on the the job of trying to convince policymakers 
um, to, to adopt different positions. And there's some evidence to suggest that he's actually been quite successful at this, right? So if it happens to be the case that at this dinner, there was a topic that, that came up where maybe you needed a little bit of, of cajoling or maybe you needed to, to persuade French officials to do something, having a celebrity deliver that message for you can often be very beneficial, right? I mean, like I said, who wouldn't want to talk to Bono about, about something like this? Who wouldn't be persuaded by Dave Matthews? Who wouldn't want to talk to Beyonce or whatever about a particular uh, a subject? So I, I actually think that having these these types of celebrities in the discussion can be quite beneficial. I don't mean to diminish the importance of celebrity work in various areas. Like Jennifer Gardner, for example, is a board member of Save the Children and is a, uh, has a lot of involvement yeah. in these kinds of things. I think all of the people who are at this dinner have a portfolio beyond just being a celebrity. Um, but uh, the idea that somehow if we skipped the dinner, U.S. relations with France would be different in any way. It seems pretty far-fetched to me. Oh, I don't. I think that's that's too strong. I think that's too strong. I think that it's not. Again, I want France to be happy with the United States. I'm, I, su- yes. I support everyone being happy and having a nice glass of wine. That's yes. not that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, when it comes down to it, right. there what France does with regard to the United States is not going to be affected by this sort of thing. What it's going to be affected by is France's understanding of its national interests. In the same way, U.S. policy is going to be affected by its understanding of its natural interests, national interests. And so having a liking the counterpart is great, but doesn't appreciably change uh, the policy between these two states. Can we imagine a scenario where a celebrity like Beyonce or Dave Matthews plays a role? Or Jennifer Gardner. Jennifer Gardner. Might play a role in convincing France of what their national interest might be. So, for example... When Bono made Jesse Helms cry, this is an article that was published in ISQ uh, back in 2007. Josh Busby wrote this wonderful piece about how, you know, Jesse Helms was this Republican, uh, didn't like the idea of forgiving uh, uh, developing country, you know, debt, despite the fact that these developing countries couldn't pay for it. And it was often taken by like dictators and then all this, all this bad stuff happens, right? They couldn't pay back the interest on the loans, let alone the, the principal, right? So Bono goes into the office of Jesse Helms, sits him down. And doesn't talk to him about this in terms of, like, economics. Doesn't say, you know, oh, this is going to be a good return on our investment because these countries are going to be able to trade with us more, blah, blah, blah. None, none of that. He makes a moral argument. He says this is the right thing to do. This is the Christian thing to do. You say you're a Republican, that you, like, you know, you're a strong Christian. This is what you should do. And so he convinced Jesse Helms in that moment, and according to, to Bono, Jesse Helms started to cry. He convinced him in that moment to reconceptualize what his interest was. In other words, Jesse Helms went into the meeting thinking, my interest is making sure these developing countries pay back these loans because I think that's the right thing and that needs to be done. He came out of the meeting thinking, my interest is actually in having these countries have their, their debt repaid by us or, or the loans forgiven or whatever, precisely because I've been convinced now that this is the right thing to do. In other words, through the celebrity of Bono, through the discourse that he was using, through his argumentation, through his statue as a, statue as a person, through his, just, uh, his charisma and his ability to, to persuade, he was able to have the United States, through the auspices of Jesse Helms, reconceptualize what their national interests were. So it's not inconceivable to me that in this particular case, we don't know what was talked about, we don't know the details, but it's often the case that, that celebrities can help policymakers and individuals kind of either reshape, reframe, or re-understand what their own interests actually are. And they just need to be convinced of that uh, a little bit. And having a dinner is a great, a great place for Beyonce or Dave Matthews to, to deliver that message. I think I might feel differently about this had I been invited to the state dinner. So whoever... Look, I wasn't invited either. Whoever's in charge over there, get me on the list. That's, uh, that's a big omission. If, 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 if anybody listening to this has any sway, at the White House. I, I think both of us, I think actually, we're talking about celebrities being like persuasive. Oh, yeah. You and I, That's you know, right. bring, us, bring us in. Bring <laughs> we us can in. make things happen. Yeah. I can make people cry. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Um, yeah. All right. Let's move on to. All right. Uh, no, I knocked that one out of the park. What else you got for me? I got another one. By the way, we should, call, we, should have, we, have, we should have a, a, a question or two that you can contribute to. We'll, we'll try to find one of those as we go along here. All right. Uh, so let's, with, with that as the, the lead in. Um, let's go to a question from Kara from Bel Air, Texas, who asks about the role of AI 
in international relations. Oh, okay. Something that you know a little bit about. And her her angle in this question is around deep fakes and sincerity and how do you know someone's lying to you? But I think we can cast this maybe even a little more broadly um, and just kind of look at the the impact of AI and IR more more generally. I, if, you, if you're out there on, on Twitter or, what, or Mastodon or whatever, whatever you're using these days um, to, to communicate, you've probably seen, like, just in the last few weeks, a huge uptick in people sharing the output of um, AI uh, tools on the Internet. And um, I know I'm sending, Marcus, I'm sending you daily. Um, and I love it. I, I want you to keep them coming because I find it, at the one hand, absolutely fascinating. And on the other hand, like the most scary thing I've ever, I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So what we're talking about, I mean, so for a while I was, I was sending you like every day, uh, AI created graphics. By the way, can you tell the, the, the listener, what, what is the website that you use to generate these, these really interesting, uh, things? So there, there are many websites, um, with different versions of, of different things, but the one that, that people are kind of passing around right now and spending a lot of time looking at is, uh is GPT-3 or chat GPT, which uh, you can find on openai.com. I will put a link in the show notes. Um, there is a kind of, this is a proprietary um, language AI model that uh, is basically writing. So the, the what we were talking about a month ago was AI creating graphics and the kind of big name there is Stable Diffusion, but there are others that, that are AI created graphics. And uh, then a new version of this language model was released. And basically this is an AI that you can communicate with through writing and it can write whatever you ask it to write. And it's really <laughs> terrifyingly good at some things. And, and mostly I've been sending you, Marcus, uh, limericks um, and, yes, I do and, like I do like limericks because I can't create any on my own. Rhyming too... sonnets and other and other yeah. forms, but you could use it for more more practical yeah. things as well. Um, and so uh, it's just been you know people are passing this around because it is uncanny how good uh, this this AI is at at kind of uh, dressing you know any request you can think of. So you know there are a number of of issues raised by this, but but one that that comes up in this question from Kara is about, um, you know, faking interactions. How do you know someone is telling the truth? How do you know you're talking to who you think you're talking to? Um, how do you know this is really a, a message from a particular person or a video from a particular person? And, and um, there's some work on deep fakes, which are videos that uh, have been kind of manipulated to make it seem like someone is saying or doing something that they didn't actually say or do. And it just so happens, Marcus Holmes, that we have a paper on this particular issue um, that looks at how do you know if you're communicating with the person you think you're communicating with and does uncertainty around those, those communications in international diplomacy, does uncertainty around those communications affect outcomes? Because I'm uncertain that this is a message that really comes from the government of Iran to the government of the United States, do I behave differently? And how do I, how do I address that? Stay tuned, everyone, as we as we get – one of these days I'm going to get back to work on this. Yeah, Jeff, by the way, do you want to give an update on like where things stand with that paper and maybe a timeline or a, a goal or – I was going to say we're going to be presenting this paper at um, the Midwest Political Science Association conference. In so if you, if you want to come uh, – what is that, April? Something oh, like that? Yeah, yeah you guys – everybody's invited. Come to the panel. Yeah, it'll, it'll, be, be, it'll, it'll be great. Be great. Um, so we should probably write up something by then is what I'm, what I'm saying. I, I like the we part of that sentence. I, I, I feel like one of us has done some work on this paper already. Uh, it's just a matter of the other, you know, part of this dyad uh, opening up the Word doc. But in, in any case, so wh- I, I think about this from a couple of different, uh, different perspectives, right? I am overall very deeply concerned about AI, right? So it, and, and not the, that AI can create limericks. I think that's nice and, and cool. It's very cool. Uh, and and the, the, it's a little scary that the, the quality or the perceived quality with which, you know, the, or the gen, what, it, what the AI is generating, right? It's like it generates things that um, previously, what was it, the Turing test? Like how do you determine yeah. if like what you're talking to is a computer or a human? That's right. I, I, most of the AI stuff I had seen in the past, like it was, it was kind of garbage, right? You would just be like, oh, this is obviously a computer. Like this doesn't sound like English, you know, or whatever, like a human would generate. But the stuff that it's producing now, I mean, it's just it's, it's it's indistinguishable, at least in the text, from something that a human being would write or or say. It seems to me, right? And so, and this gets back to that discussion we had, you know, with the chess scandal too, right? It's like sometimes you can see like 
okay, like this is a chess move like a human being would just never make because like human beings just don't think this way. No one would see that move, whatever the computer does. But like it, in the AI like stuff with these like asking these questions and asking it to, to write things, you you have gotten to the point where it's just very difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish something that's written from a human being uh, by a human being or written by the the computer. So. So that's the first part, which is like I'm I'm scared because the the ability to distinguish real from fake and fake is not the right word actually, but real from you know, human uh, human generated from uh, computer solely computer generated. Although the computers have to be programmed by humans, but but any event. So like trying to figure out like that distinction, I think is is hard today, uh, and it's going to be harder and harder. I do know that there is like you know a, a bunch of of entities. Uh, academic and, and the private sector, like working on this problem, right? So, so deep fakes that are posted on the internet, like on on Facebook, you know, you you could imagine how how harmful something like this might be, right? If you have, um, let's say, Russia produces a, a video which shows like a police officer, you know, doing something to a a, a, per, a person like in the United States, and it turns out that was completely fake, but it got it got everybody upset and riled up, right? Or if you have a situation where uh, in a in a pre genocidal context. You have some video or some image of a group doing something to another group. You could see how that would easily like incite potentially violence, right? So the ramifications of this are huge, right? And so there are entities like working to figure out like how we can how we can uh, uh, figure out like deep deep fake stuff from from real stuff. And it strikes me that it's going to be this kind of like race, right? It's going to be like the, the the programmers like doing the deep fake stuff, like trying to stay ahead of the people that are that are catching them. And my worry is that, you know, the people trying to catch them are always going to be a little bit like one or two steps behind. And so the potential for deep fakes is always going to be there. The last thing I'll say before I let you talk, Jeff, is that I'm less concerned. I know the question was sort of about diplomacy. I'm less concerned about the diplomacy angle um, for a couple of different reasons. I think that, you know, when, when leaders do interact um, over things like Zoom and, and, and other things like that, the, 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 the connections tend to be very secure. And I think it would be unlikely for a state to kind of have a, a a robot or an AI model uh, of like a, a leader or something like that um, interacting with another leader. Like, I, I don't think that that's actually like that much of a, of a concern. And frankly, for a lot of the most important like sort of summits and things like that, those are going to be in person anyway. Um, but what I do think it comes in is this, this sort of uh, idea that we were just sort of talking about or hinting at, which is that the more sort of uncertainty that deep fakes create, around all types of information and just like data more generally, I do think it's going to, and, and if and uncertainty is kind of a problem in the international system, which a lot of us, you know, kind of think that it is, you try to want to be more certain and make better predictions and stuff like that. This, this sort of like doubt that, that folks will have, regardless of what we're talking about, just any type of information, I do think kind of increases um, uncertainty quite a bit. And that, that is problematic, right? So like in a case like Iran, you know, maybe was really trying to signal their intentions with this weird fax that showed up at the State, the State Department, or maybe it was just all bogus. No one really knows. Uh, but that's like, that shows the problem, right? It's like, well, if you don't know, then you're uncertain. And a state that's trying to actually signal something to you gets, gets discounted. So I, I am worried about that kind of diplomacy uh, much more than I am about like the face-to-face stuff or the the fake videos in a diplomatic context. I, I think fake stuff in social media for the population and for uh, you know just general kind of chaos. Very concerned, very concerned about that. But anyway, Jeff, what do you what do you make of all this? Yeah, I agree with you, and and I think the the fake stuff for kind of a social media public aspect of it, it is very worrying. And there are a lot of ways you can imagine uh, things going really, really wrong as AI becomes more and more of a presence in coordinated misinformation, disinformation campaigns, which I think this kind of falls into that broader rubric of misinformation. Um, and we've talked before on this podcast about you know, going from Cold War propaganda to kind of Russian attempts to influence elections in the United States, that that trajectory, you could imagine that that curve getting a lot steeper um, and misinformation approaches becoming a lot more effective as you kind of harness AI uh, to do the job that right now is being done uh, at greater cost, perhaps, uh, and maybe not as efficiently by humans. Um, and so you could imagine tailored AI messaging that provides just the right disinformation at just the right time to affect um, to affect policy, to affect politics in, in other countries. And, you know, one of the worries that you see people testing out these these uh, AI um, things on the Internet right now, when you ask this AI questions, it is uh, very confident and it is often wrong. 
um, just like people, right? Um, and so the, the problem here is that, you know, you can imagine a very convincing um, disinformation coming from AI, even without any kind of intent behind it, right? Um, just from the way these these things are trained and created. And we've seen this in the past as some tools that have been created by uh, social media companies um, where they quickly become like horrible racist trolls when as people kind of feed it questions and ask um, and start talking to it, it can kind of shift the way these AI behave. Uh, so it, it is it is kind of an interesting question of, of how that will shake out in the misinformation context. Uh, another po potential positive effects of AI in terms of trying to understand what other countries are up to and, and what's going on in the world. And so there are um, many ways to think about how data science models, kind of the basis, uh, machine learning models, deep learning, the basis of AI could be used to help, say, intelligence analysts understand what foreign countries are up to. So there, there's a, a positive side to this um, as, as well, analyzing foreign military operations, things like this. Uh, so it's, it's quite a, a complex story. And, and as you get more into the kind of the military uh, science and technology aspect of it, um, there are a number of other considerations along this line. What happens when we start having AI-controlled weapon systems? And there's a lot of worry about killer robots uh, in some necks of the international security world um, and whether it makes sense to give computers control of uh, decisions to fire upon a, an enemy, uh, enemy target, what that means ethically and what that means kind of effectively for how well a uh, military force can operate. We're seeing right now um, in the drone war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine, um, some use of, of these kinds of systems, um, particularly for like uh, automated things like flying to a particular target and just hovering there. Um, but you, you can imagine much more uh, extensive use of, of uh, deep learning and AI to, to make targeting decisions. And then you have a whole, whole other set of issues that you're, you're addressing. But I think that the best thing for me to do is to tell you the response of the AI when I asked the AI, how is it going to impact international diplomacy? And it said that advanced AI is likely to have a significant impact. Uh, it can be used to identify patterns and trends in diplomatic negotiations, allowing diplomats to better understand the motivations and intentions of their counterparts. It can help automate diplomatic processes, making them more efficient and potentially leading to faster resolution of disputes. It can provide more accurate and comprehensive analysis of geopolitical situations and help to identify opportunities for cooperation and areas of potential conflict. Finally, AI can also be used to generate various types of simulations, allowing diplomats to test different strategies and scenarios before taking them into actual negotiation, which is a great point, I think, AI. Um, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Uh, then the AI continues. There are also- yeah, I have a PhD in this. <laughs> That's right. The AI continues. There are also potential negative effects of advanced AI on international diplomacy. AI could be used to spread disinformation and manipulate international relations. Additionally, it could be used to amplify existing biases and power dynamics, which could lead to a further concentration of power and influence. It's Finally, so good. It's good, right? Finally, AI could be used to create automated decision-making processes that could reduce the need for diplomacy or even replace it altogether, which is an excellent, excellent answer. That Jeff, is really good. Jeff, who, who needs us when you have – I mean, okay. Maybe in the spring what we should do is a podcast episode where the AI just is the host. We, we tell the AI, do an hour on international relations and uh, make it funny. You know, try to try to emulate Marcus Holmes' sense of humor and and Jeff Kaplow's sarcasm, and and let's let let it go. Just see what happens. Well, I don't know if I should admit this, but I actually had an advanced version of this software running uh, in a local instance, uh, starting about a month and a half ago. By a local instance for the non non specialist, you mean your computer? Yes. I well, not this computer, but a computer. But a computer. Yes, and um, it has been feeding me lines for this podcast for the last three episodes. So most of what you're hearing now is just me repeating AI-generated uh, lines. I did, you know, the Turing test, that does explain quite a bit, actually. <laughs> some of the comments you've said recently. But Maybe this I, is where the mayonnaise thing came from. Well, I, th I think the safest thing for us to do is just to only use it for limericks from now on, um, because otherwise it gets a little bit terrifying. So I asked it to write a limerick uh, for our podcast, and it generated this one, which I shall now read to you. A podcast of international affairs... Jeff and Marcus lend their wares. The topics are cheap and the hosts don't sleep. For their knowledge, no cost they do spare. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And with that, I think we should move to another question because this is getting a little scary. It basically brings like a tear to my eye. I, it's, like, so it's, so, it's so good. It's so good. It's so thoughtful. There's yeah. so much humanity in that response. Uh, so, Jeff, guys, before we move on yeah. uh, uh, to the next one, can you just pr- pretend for a second that I don't understand how AI works? Like, what what is the source? <laughs> I don't have to pretend that. <laughs> That's not that that big a leap. <laughs> What what is the source material? So like when we when we ask it a question, right? We say like you know tell me or or ha- write a write a thing about some topic. Um, this is gonna sound a little bit naive, but like h- how does it do that? Like where is it drawing from? Like what 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 is the 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 sources of information that it's using to create these things? Okay, so so what happened here was uh, GPT three, which is like the third version of this particular language model. This this software was set loose on the internet. It's read everything it can on the internet, um, and then it, it. What makes it really cool, though, is its ability to translate what it's seeing into almost a conversation with you. So you know, Google has also been set loose on the internet. Um, like and Google is the internet. I mean, Google, it's sort of yeah, like... in in a sense, right? And and right, so right. Google is also using deep learning, machine learning algorithms to try to give you the results you want. So the innovation here isn't so much let's get all the um, let's get all the information on the internet together and harness it. The innovation here is let's create a front end language model that you can actually converse with that can actually write in these different forms, and it can take that knowledge that's out there and kind of reform it in in a particular way. Um, and that that's what makes it really cool. Now um, there are. Uh, there are a lot of like technical detail. I certainly don't understand uh, what's going on under the hood of, of this particular model. Um, but there are some kind of cool explainers out there for what's actually going on um, underneath the hood uh, of this model. And I will, I will put a link to one or two in the show notes in case folks are interested in reading more. Okay. That was a good, that was a good short synopsis of, of what this is doing. Thank you. Thanks, man. So um, next up, we got uh, a question from, uh, this is Clara from Okemos, Michigan. Um, and Claire Oka, asks, Oka, Oka Miss Michigan, Oka Miss. It's, it's outside, a place? it's That's outside real? East land. That's outside Lansing. I see. Okay. She was hoping that we could talk about the 2022 world cup. So she would like to hear our thoughts on the events happening during this year's world cup. And because of it, for example, the bringing together of people from all over the world, learning about each other's cultures and getting along, but also how a major sports event like this sheds light on human rights problems in the middle East and elsewhere. How are countries' relations affected by the interactions taking place at the World Cup and by the matches themselves? That's a great question, Claire. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and guess that Professor Kaplow here does not think much of sports diplomacy. I'm going to go ahead and assume. I'm going to go ahead and say that there is – that isn't even a thing, sports diplomacy. <laughs> okay, that's great. That's great. I like this. So we're starting from, from, from the beginning um, uh, stage of this. Let me, let me actually take uh, the second part of the question – first right because i think all right we talk about like the world cup and like what is the value of bringing people together and this is this is something that you know has come up a lot uh basically every olympics you know that that happens people are you know, sort of t- writing op-eds about you know like bringing people together and competing it's like good for relations and stuff like that so there is a, there's a lot of discussion about that which we, which we can talk about but i think in this particular world cup the, the two sort of most interesting aspects uh, for me um had to do with one the location right so so many listeners will know that the the choice of Qatar uh was a very controversial one right because there's been a lot of criticism of Qatar from a human rights perspective uh lack of of you know freedoms for people that live there it's a very you know sort of uh conservative society it's 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 very sort of clamped down in a lot of ways and you know a lot of observers were saying like this is not the place to go and have like this big sort of celebratory uh, event, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't basically like reward, uh, Qatar f- with, with, uh, the world cup precisely because they haven't, they haven't earned it, right? They haven't like been a good actor from the view of a lot of people in the international system, uh, and could do a lot more with respect to, to human rights and things like that. So I think one of the interesting questions is how did it come to be then, despite this, you know, this controversy and criticism that Qatar actually, uh, gets selected. And a lot of that is wrapped up in the politics of, you know, FIFA and how this, this, you know, which a lot of people look at as like a kind of corrupt organization and, you know, allegations of payoffs and, and things like that. So I think the the interesting thing about this World Cup, number one, is like the place that it, that it, it took place in and the kind of controversies around, around Qatar. And I, I'm sort of on the record as saying, I don't, I don't think they should have uh, gone there either. Like, I think they should have 
chosen another country uh, precisely for the reasons that everybody was was stating, which is like this is this is a, a country that has a lot of of human rights uh, concerns, and so therefore we need to be from a sort of social perspective uh, not rewarding uh, places that or countries that that have these uh, abuses. But on the on the sort of broader question of sports diplomacy and, and what value um, there is, I'm not naive enough to to make the argument that you know sports diplomacy is going to necessarily solve the the, the issues that uh, countries have with one another. But there is some historical evidence that actually you know these exchanges and I and I think of sports diplomacy like kind of more broadly as like people to people exchange, right? Because you could do the same kind of things with sports diplomacy with music, you know, sending like an orchestra to another country uh, or having, you know, exchanges of, of various types at sort of like lower levels of analysis. There's some evidence that, that um, you know, these types of exchanges do kind of pave the way potentially for more uh, robust political interaction. So I think those, those famous example was this, you know, so-called ping pong diplomacy uh, between the United States and China. That's an interesting case because the Chinese uh, government really wanted at that time to have better relations with the United States. And, and their idea was essentially, if we can sort of, you know, thaw this relationship a little bit um, and have like a little bit of exchange, maybe that will be the ticket to having like, you know, slightly better, better relations. So I don't think their, their ultimate goal was, okay, we're gonna do this ping pong uh, diplomacy and then Nixon's gonna come to China and like the whole relationship's gonna, gonna change. But they did have the intuition that this might be a beneficial uh, thing to do as a starting point and have, you know, Americans visit China for like, at the time, I think it was like the first time in like 20 years or something like that, where there's like an official kind of like, you know, uh, exchange like that. So there, there's some evidence to suggest that, uh, you know, these types of events can kind of pave the way in a, in a, in a modest sense, not like in a major, you know, sort of diplomatic breakthrough, but in a modest sense to getting better relations. The problem, obviously, or maybe this isn't obvious to some, but the problem for, for people that study this is, is this sort of like endogeneity issue, which is that, you know, oftentimes people make the argument that, you know, sports diplomacy kind of causing better relations, but you could just as easily say, well, wait a second, you don't get better, you know, you don't get uh, sports diplomacy until relations are good enough to allow for sports diplomacy in the first place, right? So the, the causal arrow might actually be backwards. And so, you know, it, that, that's very difficult to, to tease apart. I think in the China case, it's it, it's if you if you take the argument that the Chinese were looking, as I just said, for a way to kind of like improve relations, that might be an indication to you that maybe they were in the mindset that that things were starting to improve. And so therefore, something like sports diplomacy becomes possible. You could also say in the in the alternate view, you know, they had this intuition that things were bad. Their relations were, were not good. They wanted to make them better. And sports diplomacy was allowed them to do that. So it, it, it's one of these issue areas where, like, depending on your point of view, you can kind of find evidence both ways uh, to support your, your, your perspective. So sports diplomacy has lots of methodological problems, lots of sort of epistemological problems with, with what it does, what effects that it has. And so it's, it's tricky to show empirically that, that these things, you know, uh, make a difference. But my, my sort of take on it, my intuition is that at the margins or as like a building block, it actually can, you know, help, help relations. Not, not dissimilar in some ways to the state dinners that we were just discussing. So do you think that the World Cup is going to lead to? No, I don't. A, what, what is going to be the uh, diplomatic upshot of having had the World Cup? What what new peace agreements will be signed, Marcus? What? <laughs> no, I just got through saying that the most interesting part to me about the the World Cup uh, this time was just the location. Like, I, I I don't think I think if anything, actually, this World Cup um, is going to go down as as being you know not necessarily a mistake, but from the, like the, from an international perspective, like you know, kind of a, a blunder in the sense that like there's there were opportunities here to place the World Cup. Uh, in, in lots of countries that would have benefited highly from the economic activity, potentially, that would have been sort of rewarded for, you know, kind of good behavior and, and being like a nice liberal state part of the, like the liberal international order at a time when, you know, we're worried about the liberal international order kind of falling apart. This would have been an opportunity to have something uh, to, to sort of make it, you know, to help help that order like stay in existence. And instead, you know, it's in a, it's in a place where a lot of people felt like it shouldn't have been. Uh, and it doesn't do anything necessarily for for the game and sort of like making the game look better. Uh, it just sort of shows the the levels of corruption and, and things like that. So I discount entirely any sort of like good outcome from this World Cup. More generally, I do think the idea of bringing you know countries together to compete on a on a on a playing field on a pitch, if you will, uh, 
is has modest benefits, not game-changing benefits, modest benefits uh, in showing um, the humanization, the, 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 the fact that we can do this on the playing field and not hate one another and have decent... Uh, you know, interactions with one another in a very confined, safe, safe place. I think that's that's a benefit. Yeah, one one impact that I'm willing to acknowledge from from um, sporting events from from this World Cup in particular is yeah. kind of uh, its effect on public perceptions of particular countries and entities. And you know, that just like this World Cup has just shown once again how just like comically corrupt FIFA is, and and like like you cannot imagine a more diabolical, evil, corrupt organization than FIFA. And the, the whole process kind of leading up to awarding uh, Qatar this, this, uh, these games, the, this World Cup, and then all the way through to the crazy unhinged speech by the, by the head of FIFA uh, justifying the country's crackdown on, um, on and backing off of all the agreements that it made in order to get the World Cup. The whole thing has just been... Ridiculous. And while I think not a lot of that has filtered through, at least in the U.S. media, and at least in terms of the sports media, right? Like, like if you watch Fox and you watch the World Cup on Fox, you don't get any of that, right? It's like no, entirely no, 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 no. in the bag no, for for yeah. for FIFA. And... They pretend like there's no problem, right? Exactly. They, they, they just go on with their life. But some yeah. of the news reporting around the World Cup has kind of drawn attention to to some of this stuff, including um, the kind of horrible human rights record in Qatar and the. It's treatment of gay and lesbian people and uh, it's treatment of migrant workers who built all these facilities. And also this place is the middle of the desert and this doesn't make any sense. This is the this, the stupidest idea for a world. Anyway, the, it's a, whole- a rich country that like it doesn't need the tourism. You know, it doesn't it doesn't need to like the publicity. You know, it's it's got. It's, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. There was actually um, uh, this morning I was reading a New York Times article on a on a lighter note about the problems in Qatar. Uh, which has connections to like real issues, you know, Qatar uh, doesn't allow basically like, any, any sale of alcohol uh, except for like it's one, one store, which has, you know, it's like going to like the, the ABC, like, you know, liquor store or whatever. They got like basically everything, but you can't get into that store uh, without a, like a permit. So you have to apply to the government uh, to, to get a permit. And, they, the way that the permit works is you have to make a certain amount of money per month or per year to even be considered, right? So if you don't make, like, let's say it's, like, whatever it is, like $5,000 a month, to, you don't get, you don't get uh, to even, like, a, apply. And so you have all these migrant workers in Qatar, m- many of whom aren't Muslim and would love to, you know, drink a beer after a day, you know, in the 100-degree heat, like, building your buildings uh, to be able to, like, have a, you know, go, go to a liquor store. But they're not even allowed to apply. So, like, it's just, it's just, like, another example of, of sort of, like, this, like, very controlled... Uh, society and that's you know it's fine if you don't want to sell alcohol for religious reasons or whatever but the idea that you don't allow the migrants to be able to who don't share your religious views to be able to to even apply for a license because they don't make enough and these are the people who are creating the wealth essentially uh in the form of of these buildings and skyscrapers and all that it is it is very depressing and um it's i i have to admit like it did it did like i don't like soccer anyway i'm not i'm not gonna say that I'm not a big soccer guy anyway. Uh, so it wasn't like I was going to like watch all these games and be on the edge of my seat. You know, I, I pay attention to the United States until they lose. And, and now, obviously, I don't pay attention anymore. But it did affect even my enjoyment a little bit because I was like, you know, what? why, why am I participating in this? You know, like, why, why am I observing this? It's not all that dissimilar to the NFL when all the, the information came out about CTE and like how horrendous this game, the violence of the game is for like these human beings. I still watch NFL games, but it's it's kind of not the same because I, I do like at the back of my mind know just how, you know, these guys were trying to cover this up and trying to, you know, get away with it. And it's just it's when you when you learn these the the sort of politics behind a lot of the things that are, you know, kind of happening behind the scenes, uh, it does have a tendency to kind of reduce your enjoyment uh, of the event itself. And that's a shame because at the end of the day, you know, the World Cup should be a celebration uh, and it should be like this really fun thing, but it's been tainted, I think, by the the process leading up to it. The the alcohol story from for the World Cup is so crazy. So Budweiser is like the a major sponsor of the World Cup, going back back many many years, and uh, they were all set to provide beer to the to the World Cup, uh, and then at the kind of like just before the World Cup began, Qatar changed its mind. And uh, said, no, we won't be do- we won't be providing beer at the World Cup. So Budweiser already had like th- this huge warehouse full of beer ready to go 
for the uh for the world cup and and so they're they're they kind of did the best they could with it they're like well whoever wins will send you all this all this beer and <laughs> you want a beer <laughs> but the, the fact is just as as you said like it's not that alcohol is not allowed completely alcohol right. is only allowed for people with the means and so that's true at the world cup as well so even though they there was this whole thing about budweiser if you are in a luxury box a hospitality <laughs> suite which right. you know starts at thousands of dollars for a ticket, then you can have beer and wine, right? That's fine. You just can't have it if you're in a normal seat. And so the whole thing is just so like if, if you designed uh, the, the evilest possible way to do this, this the, it just the whole thing it gives me it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. The whole thing. So yeah, you know we're gonna our 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 listenership from Qatar is gonna take a hit. But uh, I think we we basically no, they're are, with are us. They them. agree. Our listeners. That's actually are, probably true. I, yeah. I was thinking about the 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 high level policymakers that listen to this show. Yeah, I think we alienated them in the. In the we last might episode. we might yeah. be we might be alienating them, but you know what? You have to stand up for what you believe in. That's and, right. And, and students, listeners, you should say what you think. I'm willing to forego the ad revenue that we were getting from Qatar just. I mean, to make the statement that was nice. That was nice. Yeah. But you're right. We have to we have to take a stand for what we believe in. All right, let's get another question in there. Um, so uh, would it be a good idea for Biden to agree to meet with Putin, as, as was recently intimated? One of the things that got missed in that story was a pretty significant detail, which was what Biden actually said was, to, in response to a question, would you be willing to meet with Putin? He said, I'd be willing to meet with Putin if there was an indication that he wanted to end the war. Right? So like... If we're in a position where the Biden administration has some sense, some signal from Putin, some way, some form that he's willing to sort of end the war and negotiate, uh, then yes, I am. I am a hundred percent on board with the idea of Biden uh, meeting with Putin. But even in that instance, and this gets back to something we've talked about many times on this in the show this this semester, the Ukrainians have to be, in my view, the ones that are driving that negotiation bus, right? What I don't want to have happen is Biden and Putin meet in Switzerland uh, without Zelensky or without Ukrainian representation there, because I don't think that it's up to the United States to dictate terms of what the war looks like, the end of the war looks like to Ukraine or to anybody else for that matter. This is a, this is a war between Ukraine and Russia that Russia started, and Ukraine should get out of the war at the end, whatever the settlement looks like, what they think they need to get out of it and would, would live with, right? And so if the, the summit is a tripartite, uh, triadic interaction between Zelensky, Putin, and, and Biden, and, and it's because Putin has signaled in some way he's ready to talk and end the war, I'm all, I'm all for it. But in the absence of either uh, uh, the, the indication that he wants to end the war, I would not support a summit without, without any sort of like movement from Putin on that. And without Zelensky being there, I would also be, be against that. So in general... As you know, listeners and Professor Kaplan, I'm a big fan of summits. I'm a big fan of face-to-face diplomacy. I think it oftentimes provides the way out of, of crises. So I, I'm in principle, I like the idea. But I think in this particular instance, we need some assurances from Putin that he's for real. And we also need some, some assurances that Zelensky's going to have a seat at the table. And, and more than a seat at the table, actually, I think, you know, basically driving the conversation. How do you feel, Professor Kaplan? I, th- I think I actually agree with that, Sur- oh, surprisingly. I know, it's, it's unfortunate. There are situations in which... Meeting with the with someone is itself something of value yeah. that ought to be the subject of negotiation where, you know, the, this is maybe a party that is seeking legitimacy. And so merely by meeting with that party, you are granting them legitimacy if you're the U.S. president. This is something they right. value. And so you don't want to give them that legitimacy without getting something in exchange. This is like the sort of Trump and Kim, you know, that was a lot of the discourse around that. Right. So this is an argument we made about uh, President Trump's meetings with with North Korean leadership. But this often comes up in the context of, say, civil war negotiations where you have some rebel group. And if you sit down with the rebel group, if you're the government um, that's fighting that rebel group, you are kind of granting them a kind of legitimacy by virtue of sitting down with them that can actually strengthen their cause. And so you, there's some concern. You want to be careful about that, or you want to at least get something out of that uh, because that's a, something of, of value you're giving them. But uh, Vladimir Putin is not in that situation, right? And if you had the opportunity to sit down across the table, very long table, from Vladimir Putin and make the case that he should immediately withdraw from Ukraine and, you know, including Crimea, 
and go back to the pre-2014 borders and stop being such a dick, you, you, would, you would do that, right? You would do that. So I, I think as long as the message that's being carried isn't one of, I'm going to make a deal behind the back of Ukraine, I think it's fine. And I don't necessarily even need Ukraine to be there as long as they are comfortable with what the United States is doing. Okay. I can live with, I can live with that. So, so, if, so if Joe Biden goes to Zelensky and says, hey, Putin's willing to meet with me on the, on the margins of, or wants to meet on the margins of this meeting, you know, there are a few things on the agenda, including, you know, nuclear status, whatever stuff that doesn't involve Ukraine. Do you care if I do this and, and make the case that you know, he should withdraw immediately. I, you know, I, I don't have any issue with that. So I don't think we're, we're granting anything to Putin by virtue of having that meeting. There are, there are people who, who obviously who disagree with that. But if, if that's the best way to get the message to, to the leader, it probably isn't. But if that's the best way, then, then let's do it. Let's take all opportunities to tell Russian diplomats and leadership that what they're doing uh, is bad and should stop. And I don't think there's, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I we're, we're on the same page here. I mean, I, I think that message has been sent to Putin many, many times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if we, we need a summit to, to reiterate it. Uh, and so that's why for me, like, I need something from Putin first to show, you know, that, that this is serious and he's, and he's for real. And then if, 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 you know, the Biden administration feels like that signal is being sent and Zelensky is on board, then I'm, I'm with you. I think, I think you can do it without Zelensky necessarily uh, with his blessing, but you know, I do think that this is ultimately, you know, the Ukrainians need to figure out what the, what they want uh, and how they want this to end, and 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 not just Zelensky, but also just you know, what what the population, what the Ukrainians will 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 live with and and accept. Um, but but we should say there's no indication that there's any willingness on the part of Russia to move here. Well, that's why the, the question I think it's it's sort of presupposed. Like the question asked of the reporter, the reporter asked Biden, you know, would you be willing to meet uh, uh, Putin? Well, yeah. you know, I think Biden's response was perfect. Like, right. you know, sure, I'll be with anybody, but I got to see something. I got to, I guess, some indication something's changed here. At the moment, there's no indication, at least anything that's been declassified in the New York Times, right. at least, to show that there's been any any change whatsoever. And so until that happens, you know, I don't I don't really think that a meeting is, is in the cards, nor would it be a good idea. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, uh, thanks everyone for some some great questions uh, this time. We will save a few. We have we have a few more, but maybe we'll save those for for the next semester when we run out of of our own material. And keep on sending to us. I mean, if if you know you're sitting at home and it's it's New Year's Eve and you don't have much to do and you want to send us a, a question, go ahead. We're, we're going to keep a database. We have a lot of a lot of interesting questions on the list, and we'll add to it and uh, we'll try to get to yours. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the other thing you should do as you're you're sitting around on on New Year's or Christmas is uh, remember to subscribe to our podcast in your in your podcast player of choice. Um, And uh, you can do that with the instructions that are in the show notes um, or go to uh, go to our website at jakehaplow.net slash cheap talk. And yeah, um, thanks, Marcus, for joining me. This This was a good, good chat today. This is a good chat, and I just want to wish everybody, if you celebrate holidays this holiday season, I wish you a nice holiday season. Uh, I wish you the best in the new year. And I think let's let's hope that, you know, things get a little bit better from an international security perspective, that, that the war that we've sort of sat through recently gets, gets uh, uh, resolved and we can get back to, you know, not having to talk about Russia and Ukraine every podcast. Absolutely. Here, here. Happy holidays. Happy New Year, everyone. We'll see you next year. Longtime listeners of the pod will know that home improvement uh, projects and stories are a feature of, of many of our discussions because both you and I, to varying levels, uh, well, we both have houses. And if you have a house, um, you know that things break and fall apart and you have to maintain them, et cetera. So we both try to, uh, to varying degrees, take on home projects and try to do them. One of the things that's happening in my house at the moment is that our refrigerator is kind of on the fritz. Like I opened it up one day and like the lights were off and it wasn't making any noise. And I'm like, what's going on? And I thought maybe it was just a light bulb, but it wasn't that. And then I, it, it turns out like the circuit breaker, like a, a fuse, that's the right word, right? A fuse had blown. So I reset that and then it came back on. And then one of the lights start, stopped working. And then so the, 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 the thing's on the fritz. This refrigerator is from like, I'm guessing like the early 1990s. Like it was with the house when we bought it. In this country, not in all countries, but in this country, in the United States, where we're recording this today, if you buy a house, certain things usually come with it. 
uh, the refrigerator being one of them. Like in other countries, they you take the refrigerator with you. This is very odd. Maybe we could talk about that. It's like a cultural thing. Uh, falls under constructivism. But anyway, so uh, we, we inherited basically this this old refrigerator. We're like, okay, when it, when it dies, we'll replace it. So we think that it's, it's basically dying, so we're going to replace it. This refrigerator is so old that it doesn't have, like, the water on the door and the ice maker. Uh, so we want one of those, right? So, so we go, we pull the refrigerator back to see if there's a hookup for the water line. Because our old refrigerator, this, this piece of garbage we have right now, doesn't have that, that functionality. There is in our uh, uh, house, and we're behind the refrigerator, a tube that goes into the floor, down into the basement somewhere. So the first, the first challenge was figuring out where this tube actually goes to uh, and, like, what it's hooked up to and whether, it, like, it works or whatever. But what's weird about this is that the refrigerator itself doesn't have the water feature, yet we have the tubing in the back for water features on a refrigerator, or so I thought. We, we pulled the tube off, like, up out of the hole in the ground that it's going into the, into the ground that we didn't know where it was going. We pulled to see where, where, it, was, where it was going. And have somebody like look in the basement to see like what's moving around, and we pulled it right out. It wasn't attached to anything. So, so in the back of our refrigerator is a tube that it's connected to nothing, goes through a hole in the ground into the basement, connected to nothing, and now we just took it out. So I'm like, okay, we have a, a new refrigerator coming supposedly on Friday, and now we need to figure out how to tube up from our water and pipes where the water is to the refrigerator. We got to figure that out now. Ideally by Friday, so that we could test the refrigerator when they install the new one, that the water features all work and everything. So that's what I've been dealing with for the last uh, 24 hours. How's your day, Professor Capilo? Um I'm doing okay. I don't, I don't have any, um, you know, refrigerator guidance for you. That, that sounds tough, man. I, I well, feel you like... Did, you did just recently take care of that snake in your um, uh, overhead uh, door opener, garage door opener thingy. There was recently a garage door issues, yes. Yes. Um, so, I mean, this this doesn't sound like the kind of thing you can do. Do you need a plumber? The internet says no, but I think I'm going to need a, a plumber. Uh, like if there's no of, if there's all, no line already running from your water, you are not the person I would call to install s- such a line, especially if it involves cutting into a water pipe. Well, here's the the big the big problem is i I don't even really know like where this thing would go you know what i mean like there's our house there's like pipes everywhere like some of them have water in them i guess but like i how do you even like find the correct pipe you know what i mean like i think you're supposed to pick randomly and just start sawing that's if i I, feel like i my luck i would that would be like the the toilet line or something you know what i mean like (laughs) you should definitely make sure it's not the waste the waistline nice so anyway in williamsburg there's, there's a lot of nice features of Williamsburg. Uh, the number of plumbers that we have, not one of them. Like, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, like, find a plumber who can come out in, like, a timely fashion uh, for projects like this. In my, in my experience. Maybe we just don't know the right people. But it's, it, whenever you need a plumber here, it's just, like, it takes weeks and the whole thing is, you know, a big, you know, fiasco. Yeah. So my news is it was recently – Black Friday, right? The um, big shopping day before uh, and after, Cyber Cyber Monday and Cyber Monday after Thanksgiving. And I, uh, um, well, here here's my. Let me just tale of woe here. Let me give you the whole thing. So, a okay. year ago, Black Friday, 2021, uh, I found a great deal. It was like uh, it was a year subscription to the AMC Plus streaming service for like 99 cents. It was it was like some some really good deal, right? And I'm like oh, you know, for a dollar, I'll rewatch Mad Men. You know, yep. like uh, this yep. is this is a, a worthwhile thing, right? So I signed Love up, it. and then I immediately forgot that I'd signed up. Never even downloaded the app. Fast forward a, a year later, I see a credit card charge for eighty five dollars. They got you. They got <laughs> right. you. <laughs> they, they got me right. So the, I had they not canceled. I had not auto renew was on, it's and awful. there's like there's nothing you can do, right? Like that. It's 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 in signed in blood, right? That the, the $85 is gone. And so, um, my response to this is I'm going to watch the hell out of this streaming service. I'm going to make them pay for charging me that $85. I'm you can just get- have it going like on a loop. You know, uh, oh, I'm like watching, gonna... I'm, I'm watching everything there is to watch. So, yeah. so now, um, and in fact, you know, if anyone needs a, 
a login to AMC Plus. Just, you know where to find me. It out. Right. Um, so AMC uh, is that what is that like Breaking Bad? Like what is that? The, yeah. Is that the network? Yeah, there's okay. some good stuff on. There. So I watched a great um, uh, kind of low budget indie horror movie called Slashback, mm. which I'm pleased to recommend to our listeners. Uh, in which aliens arrive in kind of rural Alaska and some like uh, native teenage girls uh, have to deal with that, the invasion and fight back. It's great. Um, Just as an aside, do you think if aliens showed up, they would be aggressive towards us? I mean, these were like suck the insides out of your body and occupy it kind of aliens. So in this instance, yes. So in this instance, yeah. And it was good that... um, you know, the, they arrived where they did because, um, this is a group of people that was equipped to deal with the problem. Um, I got you. and, uh, so I watched that there's, I'm watching a show called dispatches from elsewhere, which is a Jason Siegel um, show, which is kind of weird, but interesting. I've at least, um, I've at least heard of that one. Yeah. I've at least heard of so, that one. you know, a lot of great stuff on, on AMC plus. So I'm looking forward to well, uh, I hope recouping your, my your, investment in that in that streaming service. Yeah, I'm not sure that logic holds up exactly, but uh, you know, that's I I like your I like your idea here. You're gonna really sock it to them. <laughs> I am. I'm I'm gonna. Yes, that's right. They're gonna regret having auto renewed me. I'll tell you that. So so a couple things. Like if you if you write them a nicely worded email and just say, you know, look, I was stupid. I didn't read the thing. I forgot. Whatever. Like so I, in my experience, sometimes corporations, well, not often are willing to like play ball and work with you. It's worth a shot. It's worth a shot. Hmm. It sounds to me like you want to keep the streaming service. No, I mean, I would, I would like my money. I would like my money back. (laughs) (laughs) This is, it is not something I would have paid. I would have paid this amount of money for. And I think it's shocking that AMC plus can charge $85 when my like, like HBO subscription or Disney subscription or Netflix is like less than that, you know? On Netflix, you know, I, I, that, I, guess. I appreciate, though, that you like look at your credit card statement. That's good. I think that's a habit that people should get into. Make sure they're not being bamboozled. But I'm afraid to look at it oftentimes because I don't want to see the, the numerous charges for my streaming. You know, like I, I, we, we subscribe to basically everything, you know, and it's just like I, the amount of money that we, we pay towards content that we don't watch in this house yeah. is just it's astronomical. Yeah, uh, I, I need to get better. That's that's my New Year's resolution is to like, you know. By the way, while we're on the topic of television, can I recommend a show to you? Please. Welcome to Wrexham. Have you seen this show? No. Oh, my Oh, this God. is about the uh, soccer team. Yes, the football. It is, it is, it is like a real life. Ryan Reynolds? Lasso. Is that? Yes. Yeah, okay. And the, and the guy from uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The not, the not really funny one, but the, he's, he's okay. Like the mm-hmm. second, you know, third funny one. So it is like it's they bought this this football club. It's like loser football club in Wales, and they neither of them like know anything about soccer. It's it's exactly like Ted Lasso. It's like real life. It's delightful. Uh, we're like you know, the, and it's like it's a documentary, but the production value is so high that it it almost seems like a Ted Lasso type show. It seems like a produced thing, but it is actually like a documentary. And uh, we're like halfway through the first season. Right? I think it is only one season. And it's it's great. I highly I highly recommend. Lindsay likes it. You know she. So I, I would I would recommend oh, great. watching it. I'll check yeah. it out. Uh, we started watching um, Pepsi. Where's my jet? Which oh, is, we saw that. Did you? Yeah, like, we saw that. Did you we like saw it? That. I liked. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure it can support like the number of episodes that I see in front of me. It seems like it might be like. Couldn't we have wrapped this up in 20 minutes? Um, right. <laughs> exactly. It, it would have been a good. It would have been a good hour program, but like they, they kind of stretch it out. Yeah, but the first the first episode was fun. I, I watched the first one. Yeah, the first episode is good. Uh, there's some there's some like shocking moments in that. I mean, I I didn't really enjoy it because like I thought the guy was full of it from the get go. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they just went out to like try to screw over <laughs> Pepsi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fun story and all that, but like I don't know. I like it better when like the 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 main protagonist like is a likable character. Sure. Yeah. And I didn't find this guy likable at all. Okay, that's fair. So, so that, but there is there's some cameos, um, and I don't know. I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm only uh, on episode it. two, I think. So yeah, don't, okay. don't so spoil there's, there's, there's some fun there's some fun things going on um, right. in that. 